Well, good morning, everyone. Um, all, of, all of you who are watching online, want to welcome you as well. It's really special to be back here at Bethel. The last time I stood on a Sunday morning uh, in this place to open the Word was in the late fall of 1994. It was many years ago. And for both the Hansons and for the Haugens, it's privilege for us to be back. Um, Dave and Audrey finished up here in 2011, so it's been over a decade for them here. And uh, as Dave referenced a little earlier, I came here in my late 20s. Anne was in her late 20s. I was a punk. And, um, and this church uh, loved us and welcomed us, and it was seven wonderful years for us here. And, um, and Dave was even a younger punk when he started here. Uh, and, and our kids, the Hanson kids, and our kids grew up in this fellowship. Um, when we moved here, Carissa was three, Shelly was one and a half, and Stacy was born a year after we got here at Marquette General Hospital. And when Ann and I and our family moved from here in 1994, Chris was in fifth grade, Shelly was in third grade, Stacy in first grade, all three of them began school at uh, Sandy Knoll Elementary right here in Marquette. And here are the girls uh, today. Um, that's our oldest daughter, Carissa, and her husband and their three children. They live in Sierra Madre, California, north of Los Angeles, just right up against the San Gabriel Mountains. Uh, the next picture is our middle daughter, Shelly, and her husband, Ryan, and their three sons. They live in Brookfield, Wisconsin, just west of Milwaukee. And then uh, this is Stacy, who is the, the native youper. Uh, she was born here. That's uh, her husband, Jonathan, and their three kids. They live in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee. When, um, when we moved from Marquette, Ann and I had been married at that time 14 years, and in three weeks, we look forward, the Lord willing, to celebrating 42 years together. On our 25th anniversary, we celebrated the entire year. I mean, the whole year we celebrated. During that year, one of the things we did was uh, we came back to Marquette and we were in the UP for a while. We went back to all the places that we had lived. We celebrated all year on that 25th anniversary. And on the appointed night of that silver anniversary, we went to a restaurant in downtown Minneapolis that was out of our tax bracket. But this was a special occasion. This was a really special occasion. And so we, uh, we went to this restaurant. We enjoyed a magnificent meal, two hours together, just kind of reflecting over the previous 25 years. It was, it was really wonderful. And I had been able to put out of my mind through the whole of that evening, that inevitable moment when the waitress would come with that little black folder. And after a couple of hours, I saw her approaching our table, and sure enough, she had it in her hand. So I took uh, a deep breath, I swallowed hard, and I started to reach for the black folder, and she said to us, are you Tim and Ann? Well, that thrust question threw me because we'd never been in this restaurant before. I said, well, yes, we are. She said, do you know a James and Karn? I said, it's my brother and sister-in-law. 
She said, they just called to say, dinner is on them tonight. (laughs) What's for dessert? (laughs) Hey, listen, there's something special, isn't there? When someone picks up a tab for you, when someone covers a debt of yours, here's what I'll never get over. Jesus Christ picked up the tab in my whole life. He paid my debt. And in the gospel of Jesus, we learned that at the cross, and we just sang about this, didn't we? Jesus paid the debt for our sin. And this risen now, this risen and living Lord Jesus, now invites us who trust him to follow him and to continually trust his accomplishment on our behalf. He turns it around for us. From darkness to light, from captivity to freedom, from death to life, from fear to hope, Jesus turns it around. And when a man or a woman comes into real relationship with him by grace, through faith, there's going to be opportunity to continue to watch him turn things around. He equips us and deploys us into his ongoing mission in the world. And one of the strategic ways the Lord calls us to engage in his mission in the world is through the ministry of prayer. Is that some kind of addendum to the Christian life? It is a primary means through which we can engage in his name, in his ongoing mission in the world. And that's our focus in our teaching time this morning. Would you just pray with me right now? Father in heaven, I do pray that you'd come and you would help us. God, we pray that... um, our understanding of the priority that Jesus placed on prayer, that you place on prayer, Father, and that the Spirit wants to provoke in us this morning. Lord, we pray you'd give us ears to hear and a readiness to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord that we've come to worship this morning is infinite. He doesn't have any ability Boundaries. In the Bible, we learn that all things are possible with God. Nothing is too difficult for him. It's a recurring theme throughout the biblical story. Over and over again, God demonstrates his authority over all of life. There's no challenge that overwhelms him. There's no opposition that overcomes him. All things are possible with God. Nothing is too difficult for him. Now, I am going to dare to ask myself and us in this room this morning a personal question. No show of hands, okay? Personal question, just between you and the Lord. Do you personally believe that all things are possible with God? It was a question that was faced over 2,800 years ago by a king in Judah. The king's name was Jehoshaphat. 
He was the fourth king in Judah, and the biblical historian tells us Jehoshaphat sought the Lord with all his heart. That's the summary statement over his biography. The Bible honestly includes a couple of curious incidents of compromise in his life that were costly. Nevertheless, we're told that the distinguishing pattern characteristic of his life related to his heart for God. Jehoshaphat's father was King Asa. When Asa died, Jehoshaphat fathered, uh, followed his father as king over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king. And we're told that he ruled in Judah for 25 years. And perhaps, perhaps the zenith moment in all of Jehoshaphat's life was the excellent leadership that he offered in a moment of serious crisis in Judah. By the way, parenthetically, isn't that the test of real leadership? Leaders who lead well excel in the midst of adversity. And though Jehoshaphat lived 2,800 years removed from us, the question that he faced is similar to the question that you and I face when we're faced with adversity. What's your first move when facing a life challenge? King Jehoshaphat was confronted with a major threat in 2 Chronicles 20. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, just turn the ringer down. I want to direct our attention this morning to what I think is a very instructive passage in 2 Chronicles 20. In verses 1 and 2, we learn something about this formidable challenge that was facing Jehoshaphat. Beginning at verse 1, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Moonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they're in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Now, without being familiar uh, right off with some of those nations identified or with uh, the uh, communities identified here, this was a serious threat. This was a really serious threat. Jehoshaphat's about 55 years old now in this passage. He's been in office about 20 years. He's been around the block long enough to know that the nations around Judah loathe the people of Judah. And he also knows that coalitions of enemy nations pose an unconventional threat to the people living in Judah. And in verse 2, he hears of a coalition of enemies that's already mobilized and they're pressing toward Jerusalem. He talks about the Moabites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Moonites, this coalition. They were nations that were antagonistic and hostile toward the people of God. And it says that they were in En Gedi. That was about 25 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem, about 35 miles by foot. The enemy is mobilized and advancing. They're perhaps two days 
away. And Jehoshaphat is understandably sobered to the core. The beginning in verse 3 tells us that Jehoshaphat was afraid. We get that, right? We get that. The gravity of this present threat was formidable. We might expect that uh, as King would default into a very defensive posture and start scurrying around trying to gather his security advisors, the enemy is two days away. What's his first move going to be? While we're following the narrative, let's step out of this historical episode for a moment because our aim this morning is to make this personal. Personal for me, and personal for you. God the Holy Spirit is speaking through God's word to us in this place this morning. What's your first move when faced with a major life challenge? What's your first move? You see, I expect there are some who are here this morning in a room this size, in a group this size. I expect there are some here this morning who are presently facing some type of serious concern. Many of us have known what it is at one time or another. We've known what it's like to stare at the ceiling in the middle of the night, not knowing what to do. You realize at some level, the challenge that you're facing is bigger than you in and of yourself. So, so, what is your first move? In verses 3 to 4 of 2 Chronicles 20, we see Jehoshaphat choosing to pray first. To pray first. Now, this isn't just stained glass talk. Listen to me, this is real life. This is real life. This is what we read next in the story in verses 3 to 4. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. In other words, in the face of a serious challenge, the king's first move was to seek the Lord himself and to mobilize others to join him in that pursuit. He set his face to seek the Lord. Now this story is set in history, but this is more than a history lesson. This is about real life. This is about today. This is about me and you. It's about how we face into difficulty. When I'm brutally honest with myself, I recognize that frequently my first impulse in the face of challenge is to default into reliance on my own ability and my own initiative. It's not that I don't think about prayer at all. It's just that my default is Okay, what do I need to do next? What do I need to do in my own ability next? My natural instinct in the face of challenge 
tends toward prayer as a last resort. You know, well, I'll do what I can do, and then I'll pray. Jehoshaphat turned that around, didn't he? This is, this is significant. He turned it around. His posture was, I'll pray, and then I'll do what God prompts or enables me to do. Now think about this. Whenever we treat prayer as a last resort, could it be that we have an impoverished view of God? An impoverished view of his power and ability to save, to turn it around. An impoverished view of his wisdom and goodness and personal love toward us. If we're treating prayer as a last resort, I believe the Spirit of God is speaking through the Word of God this morning to us, lovingly urging us to adjust our posture. Because it may well be that at some level, we need the Holy Spirit to recalibrate something in us. Jehoshaphat looked to God first. Rather than gathering his cabinet and consulting with his joint chiefs of staff, he first looks to God. And he invites those around him to join him. In this case, in this case, he invites an entire nation to join him. Remember, the enemy is probably two days away. It took some time for people to gather from around Judah to get to Jerusalem. And it says that he called the nation not only to prayer, but to fast with prayer. Fasting is a spiritual discipline commended in Scripture. Perhaps in our day, in the church, in the church, perhaps this is more of a neglected discipline than what we realize. It's a discipline where we abstain from food from a, for a time or from some regular habit in our lives for a period of time. Perhaps, perhaps, abstaining from social media or television for a time. Perhaps putting your cell phone away for a time. In a season where a lot of us struggle with screen addiction, Why? Why would we do that? In fasting, we aim to submit all our desires to this one priority desire for God himself. When people from all over the land convened together in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat himself stood up in front of this vast throng and led them in prayer. The crowd is hushed. Jehoshaphat didn't speak to the crowd. He spoke to God on behalf of the crowd. 
Together, a vast throng of people in Judah bow before God. And this is the very instructive prayer that's recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 20 in verses 5 to 12. It's going to be on the screen. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, just judgment, or pestilence, or famine will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we're going to cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we're powerless. Isn't that an interesting statement? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. I just love that last phrase of verse 12. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That statement, doesn't it? Think about this. That statement captures well the experience of many of us during moments of healthy desperation, doesn't it? Repeatedly, I am gripped with the disarming relevance of the Bible. It's uncanny how you can be reading the Word of God and at some point you realize that the Word of God is reading you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are ever on you. About 40 years ago, I was introduced to this axiom. It's called the gaze glance axiom. Because uh, many of us in this room would acknowledge that God is sovereign and he is overall. And we're also aware of some very real needs in our lives, some very real challenges in our lives. And, and, and here's what I think can happen to us if we're not alert we tend to gaze on our need, on the challenge that is before us. It's not that we don't think of God at all. We glance in his direction. We nod toward him. But our gaze is right here. We're preoccupied with our need. And what the Bible is doing, what Jehoshaphat did in this situation, was he very intentionally, deliberately, decided his gaze needed to be on God. It's not that he denied his need. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. Something that happens a lot of times in our lives. 
We'll go into denial. The reality is the Bible isn't commending that. Be aware of your challenge. Be aware of your need. Your gaze is on God. And here's what very often happens. As you gaze on God, you begin to see your need from his perspective. And rather than being overcome with anxiety and fear, as you're gazing at your need and aware in and of yourself of your own powerlessness, you are instead looking at a God. All things are possible for him. Nothing is too difficult for him when facing a crushing challenge. Pray first. And then there's a second principle real quickly that I want us to notice in this passage. After you pray, obey. You can almost hear a pin drop when you get to verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Can you kind of imagine it? Can you picture it? Only the sound of the breeze and a few whimpers from babies being held by their parents. And into that stillness and silence, the Spirit of God comes upon a prophet named Jehaziel. Speaking for God, Jehaziel says, verse 15, and he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle's not yours, but God's. That's a significant line, isn't it? It's not just a throwaway line. God was moving in response to the united prayer of people who relied on him. Dropping down to verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. This is Jehaziel going on, speaking prophetically. As one representing the Lord to the people. Stand firm, stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. God had spoken. And he was promising deliverance. God himself was promising to turn it around. Now, when God says the battle is not ours but his, that does not mean that his people become passive. Interestingly, God tells his people in verse 17, you'll not have to fight this battle. And a little later in the same verse, go out to face them tomorrow. That almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's not a contradiction. What's going on? There's an important principle here. And this is how I'd state it after you pray, obey. In other words, as those of us who follow Jesus aim to mature and cultivate a life of increasing faith, prayer is indeed our first move, but it's not our only move. As God responds in answer to prayer, he may choose to deploy us as a part of his answer to prayer. He'll be the decisive factor as we face personally into daunting challenges, he wins the victory, and as we obey him, 
This is just breathtaking to me. He positions us to see it. After you pray, obey. And those of us in relationship with God, by virtue of the work of Jesus on our behalf, we can by faith rest in his unfailing love even when we're anxious and afraid. When each of our girls were 10 years old, I took them on a dad-daughter trip. It's an opportunity for me to spend some time with them, building some memories as a dad prior to adolescence. And um, with Carissa, we went to Southern California. And isn't it interesting? I took her there on her 10th birthday, and she still lives there. <laughs> but I remember as a part of that trip, we went to Disneyland, and Carissa, of our three daughters, I mean, it's like nothing intimidates her. She just, we get there, she wants to go on every ride. So I'm thinking she probably wants to go on the teacups and the merry-go-round and so forth. No, Carissa wanted, you know, she wanted to go on all the fast rides. So I said, well, honey, we probably don't want to go on Space Mountain because that's really, really fast. And Carissa said, are you kidding me? So we get on Space Mountain and the ride starts and it's dark in there and it's a roller coaster that is really fast. It's dark with kind of, you know, constellations, you know, lights that are thrown up as constellations on the ceiling and so forth. And we get around the first curve and it's already going so fast. Krissa whispered to me, Dad, I think I'm falling out. I knew she was buckled in. She said, Dad, I think I'm falling out. And I knew she was frightened. And I said, honey, honey, close your eyes and lean into me. I will hold you. And she did. Through that ride. And then we came around that last turn. And it starts to slow down before it stops, right? And Carissa opens her eyes and says, oh, that was great, Dad. <laughs> that was so good. And what really happened there? I said, lean into me. And I'll hold you. And though Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah had been assured of victory, they were not passive. They were active. They were actively resting in the Lord their God, trusting him. So he took them to places he had assigned them so that they could see the victorious advance. He was working on their behalf. They were positioned firsthand to see the power and presence of God. Isn't that a good thing? In verses 20 to 30, the biblical historian tells us that the people went on to praise God. He gave them victory on every side. And when they went out to praise him, they witnessed this unexplainable deliverance that he accomplished on their behalf. God is awesome. The God we've come to this place to worship this morning is awesome. And his power to save, honestly, is astonishing. In our weighty burdens and challenges, we pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, turn it around. Lord, turn it around. 
And whenever we can do it side by side, shoulder to shoulder, together, in united prayer, it's almost as though there's exponential power that multiplies. From this historical narrative in the Word of God, we learn, pray first, and after you pray, obey. When we ask the question, what's your first move when facing a daunting challenge? Here's what I believe God's Spirit wants to say today to those of us with ears to hear. When facing a challenge that is bigger than you, engage the one who's bigger than your challenge. I want to say this again because my prayer is that this gets pressed deeper into my heart and deeper into your hearts. When facing a challenge that's bigger than you, trust the one who's bigger than your challenge. All things are possible for God. Nothing's too difficult for him. So, Bethel, Bethel. So keep on praying. So keep on praying. Don't give up. In the challenge you may be facing individually, in the challenge you may be facing corporately as a fellowship, kind of in a transition season in the church here, keep on praying. Keep praying. Wendy challenged us to that this morning. Keep on praying. And by the way, there's a whole lot of people at Grace Church who are cheering for you here. This is a sister church. This is an important church in Marquette County. This is an important church. There's a whole lot of us who are cheering for you and praying for you in this season. Keep on praying. Don't give up. Look to God and keep on praying. just want to close with this story that I heard a number of years ago. It's a story of two guys who went into an art museum in New York City. And as they went into this museum, it was near the close of the day in the museum, so they knew they didn't have much time there. So they were going to kind of just take a, a quick, you know, run through the building and just peruse different paintings. But when they walked in the front door, one of the two guys was captivated by a painting of a chess game. The friend wasn't all that gripped with a painting of a chess game, wanted to see other things. And he said, come on, let's go. Let's move around. He said, no, 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 there's something about this painting. He said, what do you mean there's something about this? It's a picture of a chess game. Let's go through. He said, no, no, there's something about this. So the friend looked at some of the other paintings and the, the museum was about to close. So he came back and said, look, we've got to go. They're about to close now. And he said, no, 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 no. There's something about this painting. This painting is a picture of a chess game and at the bottom, there's the caption, checkmate, which in chess terminology essentially means the game is over. He said, there's just, there's something wrong about this painting. Friends, come on, what could be wrong about a painting? He said, if you look carefully, the king in this painting has at least one more move. That means the game isn't over. This isn't checkmate. 
And to those of us who are here today, we have a king, don't we? We have a king who's risen and alive. Jesus. And as long as he is alive, and he's going to be alive now and forever, he always has at least another move. He always has another move. So, so, Bethel, keep on praying. Persist in praying. Don't give up. Continue going to this God who always has another move. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you'd be at work right now by your spirit in this place doing what what only you can do. You're the only one who can touch a heart. And Father, I pray you would do that. I pray that you would encourage this fellowship. I pray that you would be um, causing hope to surge here and readiness to trust you. God of the impossible, God of the unexplainable, God who loves Marquette County, God who wants to see his gospel advance. Locally, regionally, cross-culturally, and globally. God, use this church to be a part of all of that advance. In Jesus' name, amen.